Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shapes of Stories with me, Lawrence Prestige. Um, yeah, and today my guest is none other than Anne Widdicombe. Um Had a really great chat with Anne, and you know, it's always quite funny, you always get... Um, uh, you know, I, to be honest, I was quite surprised by by this one, like the people that were a bit... I guess the only word I can use is upset that I had Anne Widdicombe on. And it was similar to when I had Alistair Campbell on. It's a similar sort of reaction that people get. And um, I think, you know, a lot of that is to do with what political side you are or whether you're Remain or Leave or Right or Left or Labour, Conservative, whatever it is. And, um, but, you know, I was a bit surprised people thought that she shouldn't have a voice, she shouldn't have a platform and, you know, she shouldn't be allowed to come on the show. Um... So yeah, I was a bit surprised by that. But you know what? Like, I don't agree with all of Anne Widdicombe's um, thoughts and opinions and her views on um, on things, whether it be, whether it be Brexit or um, stuff that she said controversially beforehand. Um, but we do, we, you know, I do put that to her. I do ask her about them. And, um, you know, sometimes she, I suppose, is very, you know, adamant that, you know, she believes certain things that she's put out there. But then also she also feels like she has been... Uh, misquoted sometimes and things have been taken out of context and um, even just doing some of my own research and watching videos and reading interviews of Anne um, that is apparent that is apparent I I think you know she she has been misquoted sometimes um, with her views um, but is also very strongly opinionated as well but had a great chat with Anne. You know, we talk about obviously things you'd expect us to: um, COVID, uh, Brexit, uh, you know, politically um, in this country and the US. We talk about Donald Trump. We talk about the impeachment. We talk about um, you know all things going on in the US as well. But we also talk about other things, um, not just politics. You know, we talked about she was involved in the documentary a while ago with Mick Philpot, um, who who sadly a few years before the documentary I mean a few years after I suppose the documentary aired of Anne Whittaker when Anne was trying to get him a job well she she did get him a job and um, we had the the horrific story of the fire that killed um Mick Murray's children that they were they were responsible for starting uh really sad a really really sad story um but Anne talks about that experience being there and meeting Mick Philpot and talks about you know the whole sort of situation that um the environment I suppose that that they had we talk about Anne's writing as well you know but we both write different um <laughs> differently but you know she has her adult books out there and she's written memoirs as well and things like that and you know I'm a children's writer myself um but we talked about sort of the writing process and what she gets from writing so that was really interesting to hear about that but you know you know it was like I say it was similar to the whole Alistair Campbell thing the same people that were happy that I had Alistair Campbell on um, because of his reviews, where it be Remain and Labour, were the same people moaning about Anne Widdicombe. The people that weren't happy that Alistair Campbell came on, that came on the show um, are happy that Anne Widdicombe's now come on the show because she's really interested and, and, you know, they want to hear what she has to say. So it's kind of swings and roundabouts, really, isn't it? But anyway, um, be sure to check uh, us out on Twitter at Shapes of Stories. You can follow me on Twitter as well at LPrestige7. You can follow us on our Facebook pages and my Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is Prestige Books, and you can follow me on my website, lawrenceprestige.com. But without further ado, here is my chat with Anne Widdicombe. So, hi, Anne. I mean, how have you been doing, I guess, firstly, over this last year, the 2020, going into 2021 pandemic? It is nearly a year now, yeah. Um... Well, I've been very blessed because I'm on Dartmoor, so uh, A, um, I don't see a lot of people anyway, uh, B, I've got the moor to exercise and wander over, and it's very beautiful, uh, and my great fear is that I could get used to this sort of life. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can only imagine. I mean, how do you, I mean, so you've been coping with the lockdown sort of isolation okay, I guess? 
Oh, completely. I mean, I've always liked my own company anyway. I chose to live where I live because I do like isolation. Doesn't mean I'm antisocial. Um, but uh, on the whole, you know, this suits me very well. So I haven't got any complaints at all. Yeah. What, what have you been doing with yourself over lockdown? Have you been doing much writing? Are you writing? No, I mean, there were a sort of thousand projects I thought I might uh, embark upon during lockdown, but somehow there's never quite been the time. I don't know where it, come, it goes. Yeah. yeah. Just having some of that personal time, I suppose. Well, it's it's been great. Uh, yeah. I mean, today, for example, we've got quite deep snow here. Uh, and so I couldn't get out even if I tried, not even to walk. So uh, after this Zoom interview, I shall probably light a log fire. Uh, oh, and nice. uh, Yeah, exactly. And just uh, relax and enjoy the snow. Yeah. Is there any sort of TV series or Netflix in that you've been involved in, into? I've been re-watching uh, Foils War. Foils War. Yes, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love a police story, but I like one without sort of swearing and sex and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing other than very stylized violence, you know, for the murder. So uh, I, that's that suits me. Yeah. Have you watched The Crown? Have you seen The Crown? No, I haven't, and I wouldn't. Um, I I don't think it's fair on the royal family. Yeah, I think I figure there's been a lot of con yeah controversy over the sort of the princess die sort of series that's been coming out and how they've been portrayed. Do you? I mean, do you do you think like stuff like that should be on television if it's not completely factual? No, um, I I don't unless there's a, a a sort of a major warning that comes with it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they say it's based on facts, and that always means, of course, that it's not factual. I mean, that's the first thing. When you hear this is based on a true story, you know that the story you're seeing is not true. It's merely based on, loosely, uh, something which happened. Uh, I think if that is always made clear, then, you know, it's, it's not so bad. But otherwise, I think it can be very misleading. People do believe a lot of what they see and hear. I mean, I can't believe the number of people who are taking relatively seriously, you know, all the conspiracy theories that are rushing around on social media at the moment. And I roar with laughter. Yeah. Well, it's the one about the the, the vaccine, right? Oh, There's, the vaccine. Well, it's got chips in and we're all going to, uh, we're all going to be tracked or something. I mean, honestly, yeah. honestly, how do they believe it? I know, yeah. It's the, the Bill Gates agenda, apparently. I think some people are, <laughs> have been saying, <laughs> wait, wait, for what possible reason. Yeah, which all the world's governments are signing up to. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> no, no, not. I mean, how do you think our government's been doing with the whole pandemic? I mean, at, at first it's been a bit like you've, you've got to be a bit easy on them at first because it's such an unprecedented thing. It's never happened before. But do you, there's a, they're getting a, a bit of stick at the moment in terms of not learning from the past lockdowns and the past I, actions that we've done. I like. strongly disapproved of the first two lockdowns. This one... I have been uh, more acceptant of because there are factors present that weren't there before. Uh, you've got the other uh, coincidence with the winter pressures that are always on the NHS, the winter flu, etc. That's come. Um, secondly, the transmissibility and the strain is different. Uh, so uh, one has to take that into account. And thirdly, of course, you can see a purpose to this lockdown because of the vaccination programme, which has been a huge success for the government. But because of that, you can see uh, that there is some purpose to the lockdown because you've got something to come out to that might actually stand the test of time. Um, but the first two lockdowns, 95% of those who died uh, were either uh, in advanced old age or had an underlying health condition or, in a large number of cases, both. Uh, and therefore, I could see no sense at all in crashing the economy when only 5% of the working population uh, was going to be affected by this disease, badly affected, that is. You know, we can all get it and not even know we've got it, but badly affected. I couldn't see the point. My view was you should have locked down those who were elderly and unhealthy and then concentrated on what you could do to protect them, particularly those in care homes who were more or less neglected. Um, you then um, concentrate on how you can support a lockdown of that group with things like mixing once people had been totally isolated for three weeks, for example, mixing only with people who had also been totally isolated for three weeks, could have organised all of that. 
Instead of which, we had the worst of both worlds. We crashed the economy and we didn't actually support uh, that 95% uh, of people who were going to uh, get it badly, um, even though we knew what the definition was and we knew you know, which sort of portion of the population they were in, we didn't support them. So we had the worst of two worlds and we had that in both uh, both the first two lockdowns. As I say, I'm more acceptant of this one. I'm not saying I'm 100% happy, but I'm much more acceptant of this one than I was of the other two. Yeah, do you think this has to be the last one we have, the last lockdown? We can't go back into this. Uh, uh, we can't. I mean, if this doesn't work, then we have got to live with the disease. And that doesn't mean letting it rip, as some people suggest. I mean, you didn't say in the Second World War, oh, let the bombs drop. I mean, you built a whole range of defences against them, um, you know, from barrage balloons, um, air force attacks, uh, air raid shelters, wardens, civilian wardens, huge um, effort to try and make it. Um, and, and of course, the air raid warnings to try and make it as possible to keep people safe in a situation which you could not avoid. And so you didn't say let the bombs drop. And I wouldn't say let the virus rip, I would say, right, now let's look at the precautions we can take while still functioning normally. And let's particularly look at looking after the people, I mean, most of whom are retired, so it should be perfectly possible, looking after the people who are seriously vulnerable to this. Otherwise, um, you know, you, you'll be in and out of lockdown and there will come a point when the economy will be unrecoverable. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about, I guess, children and teenagers and sort of losing that, oh. the, the academic experience, you know, whether it be their first, they would better have their first year at secondary school or their GCSE year or their first year at university. university. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean, how do you think those, the, that generation are going to recover from this? Well, I'm very, very sorry for the university students because this has effectively straddled two university years. You know, the, the, the second half of last year and the first half of this year uh, in university terms has been completely wrecked. And university is such an experience. I had the time of my life at Oxford you know, and I just feel so sorry for them. Um, but they will recover. I mean, you know, they will. In fact, I talked to a couple the other day who said they were now going to do a postgraduate degree simply in order to get the university experience, which I thought was, was quite funny. Um, but I am sorry for them, but they'll recover. Um, the very young will recover. You know, their education's been interrupted, uh, but there are youngsters all over the world who have to learn remotely, um, uh, particularly out in, in places like, um, you know, the wilds of Australia, for example, where they, they, they are always taught remotely. So uh, they, they will recover. The people whom the government are going to have to sort out and sort out very speedily are uh, those in public examination years, the GCSEs and the A-levels. Now, the government's got to come up with a solution to that. Whether it is that everybody repeats a year um, or whether it is that they have a different method of examination, that's up to them. But those are the students who are going to be most immediately affected because you know, GCSEs and A-levels are in order to enable you uh, to carry on beyond that to the next stage, whatever it might be. So uh, that's where I think they've got to concentrate their efforts. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, thinking about the seeds as well um, across the pond in the United States. I mean, how did you feel when you saw the Capitol building? I mean, what were your thoughts? I was that? appalled. I was absolutely appalled. Now, you know, to be fair to Trump, he didn't say let's storm the Capitol. Um, and but I mean, the lesson is that when you whip up a crowd, there, there comes a point where you lose control of it. You know, it does what it wants to do or rather elements within it uh, do what they want to do. Uh, and that's what happened in the cap at the Capitol. Uh, it is quite right that everybody who is engaged in that riot uh, should pay the penalty due at law uh, because you have to discourage that sort of thing in the future. I don't think he deliberately incited it. I think he was very angry. I think he got his supporters very angry. Um, but I think then he relied on those supporters to contain their anger in a way that they probably were never going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but he also, you know, he kept talking about the election being stolen and the election being rigged. And we, we spoke kind of about, you know, conspiracy theories and things like that. Is there 
any way that the President of the United States and the information that he has can genuinely believe that the election has been rigged? Well, first of all, that is perfectly normal language in the States. If you actually look back to what happened uh, when Trump first won, Nancy Pelosi actually tweeted out, this election has been stolen. You know, this sort of, this sort of, yeah, yeah, and it's there, yeah. and it's on the public record. So that sort of language isn't as unusual as it would be for us. We wouldn't say that. Um, but I can quite well believe uh, that there was fraud. But there, there always is in any election, particularly elections where you've got any sort of postal vote at all. There's always fraud. But on the scale that would determine the outcome of the election, I would think intuitively at any rate is very unlikely to have been on that sort of scale. Now, he might be able to produce uh, evidence of, of this went wrong and that went wrong and somebody did this and somebody did that. But on a scale sufficient to have swayed the election, there would have to be a huge body of evidence for that. I don't think it's there, but having said that, what do I know? Well, I mean, something that you do know about is censorship, because you've spoken about it after seeing some of your um, talks about censorship. And I mean, do you think it's dangerous now that the ex-president of the United States, no matter what, you know, I know he's very opinionated and says what says how he feels for sure. But is it how dangerous is it to, to deplatform him, to take away his social medias? Um, if he were deliberately inciting sedition and rebellion and all the rest of it, then that would be perfectly reasonable. But simply to do that because um, you think that you, you, you don't agree with what Trump says, uh, and I think most of us would have severe difficulty with some of the things he said, um, and that, that is wrong. And I think we have to distinguish between saying you stop somebody's platform because that person is dangerous, and that doesn't mean a debating platform, because by definition, if it's a debating platform, you've got somebody on the other side and you can hear both sides. Um, but if it's somebody who is dangerous, somebody who's inciting terrorism or, or whatever it might be, or putting people on the path to terrorism, um, that is one thing. But just because you disagree with every last view that somebody has got, um, and just because you think that view is wrong, um, possibly even damaging, doesn't matter. That's still that person's liberty to say what they think. Um, I feel very, very strongly about this. I suspect one of the things you're referring to is my debate at the Oxford Union. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, in 2019, uh, when I pointed out, you know, that um, I grew up in the post-war years uh, and people had lost sons, brothers, fathers, husbands to the Nazis. They'd lost, they'd lost their limbs. Uh, civilians had died, people had lost their homes, it, and that had only just happened. And yet, people like Oswald Mosley and Colin Jordan were able to hold their rallies. And similarly, when we were in the height of the Cold War, you could still proclaim yourself a communist, you could stand for Parliament even as a communist, you wouldn't get in, but you can stand. You sell the Morning Star on street corners. You can openly subscribe to the Communist Party. You can write communist opinions in the press. Um, and that was at a time when we were engaged in, in the Cold War. Uh, and that was because we valued liberty. And I mean, the maxim I grew up with, which is a cliche now, but never mind, because it's, it's, it's a cliche for a good reason. Uh, and that is that However profoundly you disagree with somebody, you can still defend to the hilt <coughs> Sorry, their right to say it. And I think we have lost sight of that second point, that if you defend somebody now, everybody thinks, oh, you're defending what they've said or what they did. And I say, no, I'm defending their right to do it and say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we've, there's a point that you made as well in that Oxford talk about, you know, you'd love to have the... Um, a debate with someone who was a Holocaust denier, for oh. example. You, you know, you know, not you know, you'd love to be able to have that conversation with them. But a bit like Trump as well, like deplatforming him only fuels their anger in a way. Absolutely. You know, because because when he's saying stop the steal, the election was rigged, and you take away that voice, his supporters are going to be like, there's something in this that they don't want us to know. Yeah, uh, and that is the great danger with driving anything underground. 
Um, now, I would not sit on a platform with a Holocaust denier unless I was debating against him. I wouldn't sit there you know, and, and, and just listen to his views. Um, but I think it is much healthier to debate and to destroy than it is to drive something underground. And then people do say, oh, well, you know, there must be something in this. Get it out in the open and there's nothing in it uh, except lunacy. So let's, you know, let's see that. Yeah. Do you, do you think he will be impeached, Trump? Oh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, it, you know, that's, Nothing much will happen, but, you know, it's... Um, it's a way I again, maybe. Just it's a way I suppose again. of trying to stop him running again. Yeah. 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 And you just worry if that's going to cause more scenes like we saw um, in, in the new year. Uh, well, you know, I mean, impeachment is a is a process of justice, or certainly quasi justice. So one must just let that go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, obviously, you're known for being fairly outspoken yourself. I mean, is there is there anything you feel that? that you've said it's been taken by, you know, we talk about fake news and things like that, and it's been taken out of context. Oh, in, all in the time. Way. Yeah. All the time. I, one of the things, didn't even say, uh, one of the things, for example, is that there is a, is a complete urban myth about the place, but every so often it comes into the newspapers and I have to get a retraction and an apology. And I got legal warnings on the files of every newspaper in the country just about. Um, is people say that I believed in uh, and, and indeed affected uh, while I was in the Home Office, uh, chaining women up uh, in labour and childbirth. It's actually on the record in Hansard where I said quite clearly, um, it's never been the policy of any prisons minister or of any director of the prison service, never been the policy of any government or of you know, the prison service, to secure women in labour or childbirth. It is there on the record, in black and white, undeniable, and yet the myth has grown up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's another example as well, because, uh, I mean, there, there is that headline of you sort of saying that um, science can cure homosexuality. And then, you wa- and then you watch the video and it's like, well, the, headlines do- <laughs> the, the headline gives it more of a thing than what you actually say. Uh, they protected themselves very nicely against libel on that occasion because what they've done is quote me exactly when I said, and it may be that one day uh, science will find a solution, and I was talking about uh, transitioning, um, and they put inverted commas around that, and then they added the words to homosexuality. I had never said that. I had never said that. I've never used the word cure. You know, and yet this is all attributed to me. And I'm afraid that's an occupational hazard of public life. Uh, and in fact, on, on a much lesser scale than any of that, people do not read what you have written. So these are your own words that have appeared in, under your own name in a newspaper column. Clearly your own words. People don't read it. Um, they get an impression and they go uh, on that. And I'm amazed sometimes people write to me and say, well, you said so-and-so. And I say, go back and reread it. Pretend you're doing a comprehension test. That's actually rude enough to say that occasionally. You know, pretend you're actually doing a comprehension test and then tell me what you get. And of course, it's different. And some people do actually apologise. And I always admire that. I had a lot of apologies after the homosexuality row, which you've mentioned, because I simply wrote back a one-line response to people. Uh, and I said, are you reacting to the interview or to the Mesia frenzy? Um, and then I, I, you know, a lot of people, ret- some people retracted, others just went very silent. Yeah, well, it's the headlines sometimes as well, isn't it? Because even on, on like YouTube or something like that, you can see Anne Widdicombe says science could provide a cure for homosexuality. Then you watch the video and it's like, well, that's not what, that's not what so out of context. No. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not. You're right that our media does that, but you know. <laughs> and actually, I was I was on the Ian Dale program on LBC, and Ian Dale, of course, is 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 openly gay, and a great friend of mine. And I said to him on the program, I said, if I thought one half of what people say, I think, would you want to know me? And he said no. Uh, and and that sums it up. You know he. He, people like Andrew Pierce, you know, Craig Revelhorwood, Amanda Barry, they know I don't think like that. Yeah, 
and it's it, sometimes I don't know if it's a, a tack on. I mean, I'm a Christian myself. Is is it kind of when people realise that you have that faith, they want to sometimes not everyone, but sometimes they do want to attack it. It's like well, you know, when I sort of say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church, they kind of go, what's your view on this? What's your view on that? And they kind of want you to kind of almost slip up, but <laughs> you know, yeah. before you say anything. And that is because they have already got a distorted view of what the church teaches. And I find one of the things very, very difficult now, people have lost sight of forgiveness. Uh, the, the, the whole thing's about vengeance, it's about lock them up, throw away the key. Uh, people have completely forgotten the, but for the grace of God go I. They've completely lost sight of that. And I find that very difficult because sometimes I, I will write in, in those terms, and I'll get an absolute shard of abuse from people that I'm defending some awful person or I'm defending what they've done. And when I questioned, for example, the wisdom of um, hoiking a 97-year-old man into a juvenile court because he was 17 at the time of the alleged offence, uh, because he had been uh, a, a guard in a concentration camp with absolutely no record at all of active participation, when I simply queried, is this proportionate at this stage when he's 97? Is it proportionate uh, to punish him because he wasn't brave enough at 17 to stand against a ghastly regime like that, even though he directly did no wrong? The reaction was that I defended an actual Nazi, as if I defended the concentration camp or defended what his role is. When all I'd actually done was query proportionality. You, you can't win. You don't expect to win if you're in public life. You know that people will distort anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the battles you've had recently was the, the Brexit battle, which seemed yes. to drag on and drag on and drag on. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I did vote Remain. That's when you, be, you know, it, it was it was not an easy decision for me. It was something that I felt like I couldn't without doubt say what Brexit was. I didn't have, you know, 100% clear uh, knowledge. Well, now of you Brexit know it's about been. getting the vaccines, don't you? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, but yes. Uh, I mean, how, do you, I guess, firstly, now we have this deal, do you feel like it's the best possible deal that we could have hoped for? No? No. Uh, I, first of all, there was a huge sellout on fishing. But uh, even more important than that, vastly more important than that, in my view, at any rate, um, we created a border uh, down the Irish Sea, which effectively means we've cut Northern Ireland off from the rest of the UK. Um, <coughs> and we also left them uh, in the single market. So we've separated them from the rest of the UK. My view is that was um, a severely retrograde step and it should never, ever have happened. So, no, I don't think this is the best deal we could have got. Um, that doesn't mean that I want to rewrite it now. I think we've got a simple choice now. We either get some common sense in terms of practicalities out of the EU as to how we're going to implement it, um, or we, we simply break it. We simply say, well, you know, this isn't what we asked for. This isn't what you said would happen. Uh, and therefore, no, we're, we're not going ahead with this. Um, what I don't think you can do is start another negotiation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when when you sort of left politics, did you ever think in your wildest dreams you'd be on the front line again? Like oh, this? no, never. I mean, I was loving retirement. I'd done Strictly, you know, I did Big Brother. I was doing television quiz shows for charity. I was doing pantomime every year. And I had one lined up that year, which I had to drop. Uh, and uh, it yeah, that was my retirement. And if you'd said to me, even as late as January 2019, if you'd said to me then, Anne, you're going to go back into politics, you're going to change party, and by the way, you're going to become a member of the European Parliament, I would have said, lie down and have an aspirin. And that's certainly not going to happen. But gradually my frustration with Theresa May and with the, uh, the non-implementation of the referendum result. Uh, that um, frustration finally came to a head and I said, right, well, am I going to go on just writing about this in my Daily Express column and yelling from my armchair? Uh, or am I actually going to do something about this? And I was uh, speaking on a, on a cruise ship and we were doing the Norwegian fjords and I stood in a fjord one afternoon, not in the fjord, but one afternoon, uh, and I crossed a Rubicon. And I took out my mobile phone and I rang Nigel Farage. Uh, and um, 
the rest was my history of the last two years. Yeah, and I, I mean, suppose, do, how do you think the Brexit party, are you sort of happy with what you achieved or did you think that, oh, yes, did you hope for more? Yeah. Basically, we got Brexit, I, I mean, in, in different ways. Uh, uh, first of all, its predecessor, UKIP, managed to win the referendum. Uh, then um, the Brexit party managed to get rid of Theresa May uh, as a result of that overwhelming success in the European elections. Um, and then, of course, Boris had to make a platform of Brexit, which he did, which he did. And he said, get Brexit done. And we withdrew our candidates and conservative seats so that he would win. He owes the size of his majority to the Brexit party. Uh, and so we effectively got Brexit. Uh, and we spent seven months in the European in the European Parliament arguing for Brexit. Uh, and so, yes, I, I'm happy with what the Brexit party achieved. I have to say I am deeply relieved that I did not end up back in Parliament. Um, in the earlier stages, when we appeared to be fighting every seat and we were, you know, um, very, very high in the polls and all the rest of it, I thought, oh, you know, this could actually happen. And I didn't want it to happen, really. Um, but I did think it was my duty to go out there and, and fight under the banner. Uh, and then when Nigel decided we weren't going to fight conservative seats, which meant that we couldn't form a government, which meant that actually we weren't offering the electorate anything much. Uh, I thought, right, this isn't going to happen. Um, but I went ahead and I I still fought the campaign because I thought, you know, we've still got a message that we've got to get across. Out there. Yeah. And I, I suppose in that general election night, I mean, I remember just watching it thinking, please let be a hung parliament, please let be a hung parliament. <laughs> but I mean, conservative, I mean, the, the Tories won overwhelmingly. I mean, where do you think? We did that. We did that. I mean, if you actually look at the red wall seats, you know, in numerous seats, uh, they actually won by less than the number of votes we took from Labour. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, where do you think it went so wrong for Labour, though, in terms of some of the places that there would have been a banker for Labour to get a seat, just just going the other way? Do you think it was more because of their stance on Brexit, just sort of not a clear view where, where they sort of felt? Or was it Jeremy Corbyn? You know, what, were the, what was the reason? Well, I know very well that Corbyn terrified people because I had people on the doorstep saying they wanted to vote for me. They would quite like to have me as their MP. Um, uh, but um, they had to stop Corbyn. And the only way to stop Corbyn was to vote for, for a major party. And you know, I understood that, frustrating that it was, I understood it entirely. I so people were terrified of Corbyn, but I think something else was going on. You know, if you actually look at the seats which delivered um, a leave vote in the referendum, there were an awful lot of Northern Labour seats that did that. Yet their party in Westminster went entirely the other way. And I think they just felt the Labour Party wasn't speaking for them anymore. You know, it was speaking for the metropolitan elite, wasn't speaking for them. I think there was a real disengagement um, of the normal Labour voters from the Labour Party. Yeah, uh, I mean, one, one thing I'm hoping that we don't get again is another Scottish referendum. I mean, there's the noises about that at the minute. I mean... Do you, do you see it happening again? It, it just feels like it wasn't even, it wasn't that long ago we had another one, and I, I'm not even sure why they want another one, but are you hoping we don't see another one of them? Well, I, I certainly hope we don't see it. We won't see a legal referendum because Boris has made it quite clear they can't have one and they do need Westminster's consent to have a, a referendum at all. But there may well be an illegal, a wildcat referendum, may well be. Uh and that in itself is dangerous because if people think, well, this isn't legally binding, uh, then they can do whatever they want to do for whatever motive they may have at the time. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, th I think there is a danger to the union there, but it should be perfectly possible to convince the Scots um, that alone, without us, they won't be much better off than Greece in the EU if they're even admitted to the EU. I mean, Spain has a big problem with Catalonia. Now, you know, I don't actually think they, they may be wanting to encourage uh, breakaway uh, countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to, I suppose, you, you know, you, you, you spoke about um, Strictly and Big Brother. I, I guess out of those, those two different reality shows, both very different challenges, what was the toughest one for you to do? Oh, Strictly was undiluted fun. I mean, Strictly was just fun. 
I never took it seriously because I didn't honestly expect to get beyond sort of week two or three. I really didn't. I thought I was going out very early. I mean, I couldn't dance. Come on. Everybody could see that. You know, I couldn't dance, couldn't hear the music. Um, I've got no sense of music and timing. Uh, and Anton called it a lot of things, but he never called it dancing, not once. And we did we did comedy, basically. Uh, and it was great fun. And there was nothing depending on it. You know, I mean, it wasn't a world war. It wasn't a major political event. And nothing depended on it. I couldn't do anybody any harm or oh, Anton Shins, possibly, but nothing else. So it was a complete release from responsibility and it was undiluted fun. Um, Big Brother was very different. And the only similarity between Big Brother and Strictly was that, again, I expected to go out very early because I gave my views, you know, and a lot of them are not popular views, as, as you indicated in earlier in this discussion. Uh, and I gave my views when asked for them. I didn't impose them on anybody, but I gave them when asked. And I thought I should go out very early from this. Um, but no, I was the runner up just as I lasted 10 weeks in Strictly. Uh, so, um, <coughs> but Big Brother was not fun in the same sense. Uh, you are, Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. And when you're locked up with a small group from whom you cannot get away, you cannot get away, and you're locked up as I was for four weeks with these people, you've got no contact with the outside world at all. You don't know what's going on in the outside world. And the only stipulation I had to make, I said, look, if the monarch dies, because I'm a privy councillor, I've got to leave the house immediately if that happens uh, but other than that I had no contact with the outside world uh, I didn't know what was going on and you're with this group of people who are selected because they're expected to argue because they have nothing in common and they're selected from for that reason uh, and it's therefore it was quite a strain but I did get the bit between my teeth and I did think I really want to survive I mean in the the first vote I thought well you know if I go now that's fine I still get paid I've got all the extra time that's wonderful second vote came up I was sort of slightly more wanting to stay by the end I was extremely competitive about the whole thing <laughs> and I, I, I suppose because you know what we see on Big Brother is is a, is a sort of smaller version of what's really good on the house is there a lot of sitting around during the day In, in Big Brother. Yeah. Huge amount. Yeah. Huge yeah. amount. There are times when there are no tasks and all you've got is conversation. You can't even um, take out a tissue and draw and lots and crosses on it. They'll demand that you put that in the bin. So you can't read. You can't do puzzles. You can't uh, play games that involve anything. You can play charades, and we did quite a lot. Uh, but you can't do anything else. Um uh, you know, and I suppose you could draw noughts and crosses in condensation on the window pane. They tell you just, you know, rub that out. So, and on those days when there are no tasks, you've literally you've got nothing to do except talk to people um, who a don't much like what you think, uh, and b want you out. So they're trying to trip you up the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, another sort of. Um piece that was on tv that you were involved of was that i mean the mick philpot documentary and you know what oh. happened after that was a, 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 a horrific um story what happened i mean you went there to to, to try and get him a job you know because he was known as i suppose oh, I, did. He, I got him three well yeah i mean I well, whether he was going to take them or not is <laughs> um uh, but well, you know he he, he was he in, never no yeah i mean he was he's he was in Jeremy Carl is Britain's biggest scrounger. I mean, and then obviously what happened was horrific with, with his children. When you met Mick Philpott, did you ever think he was capable of something like that? No, I mean, such a thought never crossed my mind. Um, the children were, I mean, they, they were clothed, they were fed, they had play facilities, they got to school on time. Um, you know, there was no, indi I mean, it was a very dysfunctional setup, but there was no indication uh, that the children were going to suffer in, in, in the horrendous way that they did. The one thing I did notice while I was there was um, I never once saw a child flinch from him, never. Uh, I did mark you on a couple of occasions, but I never saw a child do it. And 
But what I did notice was that if a parent sits down in the chair, don't forget there were 11 kids in this house and sort of five or six of them were small children, you know, small children, infants. Uh, and um, if a parent sits in an armchair, the most normal thing in the world is for small children to climb aboard. You know, they get up on the arm of the armchair or on the parent's lap or whatever. That's the most normal thing in the world. I never saw it happen once. Never. And I did comment on that afterwards. I said, you know, this isn't, there's, there's an absence of warmth. But I never had any indication. I mean, nobody did that there would be that level of of horrendous risk-taking, which is what it was. He, they didn't intend to kill them, but what they did always had the possibility of killing them or at least causing very serious um, injury. Um, but uh, I would never have thought that that was going to happen. Yeah, because, I mean, even in the documentary with you, with, with Mick, there, oh. was, there was some aggressive <laughs> moments towards you as well, like... Oh. Always called me B I T C H. Always, you know that that was his way of talking to women. And I remember in the in, in the first time I met him, uh, and he showed me his caravan, which he'd got parked in his front drive. Uh, and he said to me, uh, "This is where I sleep, um, and uh, I take it in turns uh, with the women." That's the expression. Uh, every night, first one, and then the next night the other. And what the word he used was this. He said. And I take it in turns to service them, not make love, not even have sex, service like a farm animal. And that really did, even then, when I knew nothing about what was going to happen, that really did hit me between the eyeballs because, you know, who talks like that of their wife and mistress? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, did, did you see that love and affection to his wife and mistress and his children or did it or were they kind of characters in the McPhilpot show they, they they were characters in the show but what amazed me was that the mistress finally walked out because there was no sign of that happening they were both completely not only under his thumb but they were under his spell you know when i said were they looking forward to mick working because i got him three jobs and he was able to choose between them um they both said they both said the same thing. They said, "Oh, well, it'll be nice for Mick." They didn't, didn't talk about themselves whether it'd be a good thing to have money coming. In. Just you know, it'll be nice for Mick. <coughs> that was all they could come up with. And I was amazed. They they both seemed to me pretty feeble. And I was amazed when the mistress finally just walked. Yeah, and as I saw recently in the news that his wife Mireille, that she'd been released from prison. Yes. I mean, do, do you think like? Although she was in a position where she could have stopped what had happened with the fire, was she partly a victim as well? I don't think she was a victim, but I think that she wasn't very bright. And I don't think she thought through what could happen. So therefore, it probably never occurred to her to try and stop it, because I don't think I'm, you know, I'm talking here what I observed, not what I know. Uh, but I don't think she would have worked that through and said, well, hang on, Mick, what happens, you know, if the fire gets out of control? Um, which it did very, very quickly, of course, very quickly. Um, I I don't know. I don't see her as a victim, but equally, um, as I say, I, I don't think she was the brightest button in the box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it... Probably, do you think it probably is right that she is out of prison now? Because I mean, she has lost her children. I guess the the worst thing she probably did do was was carrying on the charade of what happened. Oh well, uh, I mean, more than that. I mean, neighbours testify that they were going to parties. You know, they were going to karaoke and things like this, and the, the neighbours really objected. Um, one neighbour even testified that um, when Maraid was, I, I think she was going on television or something that she took ages trying to get the neighbour to decide what she should wear. Uh, and the neighbour said, well, hang on, Marie, you know, you, you've lost six children. Uh, six? Six? I mean, most of us wouldn't be able to function if we'd lost one or two, but six. All her children, literally all her children. Yeah. And I think, I think even in a documentary I watched about it recently, it was just, they, they sort of said Mick sort of there was this, one of his mates on the street that they live in or something was writing letters and stuff and there was just no remorse 
at all. Still sort of everyone else's fault but Mix. Is that kind of... I think the judge summed it up. Um, or it could have been the prosecuting counsel. I can't remember which. I think it was the judge who said what Mick Philpott wants, Mick Philpott gets. And who summed that up as his attitude to life, basically. I don't forget he'd already served time for attempted murder. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, such a sad story, but I mean... I don't think he's capable of, of empathy. I don't think he felt for, for the suffering of those children. He was concerned only for himself. I guess sort of it's difficult to go on to another topic after speaking about that because it's such a sad story. But I mean, talking about charities, uh, I mean, you're involved in quite a lot of charities. I mean, I imagine you get sort of inundated with charity I requests. Do. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, how do you decide what charities you're going to sort of go with? Well, I went through a phase of just saying no to everybody, because not because I was mean, but because I already had so many. And I said, look, you know, I can't commit. Now, the normal reaction of a charity when you say that is that they will write back to you and say, we don't want you to do anything. We just want your name on the notepaper, you know, as an endorsement. We don't want you to do anything. You don't have to write any letters, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I've tried to pick charities and you don't sit there looking at 100 and picking them because 100 don't come to you at once. You know, they come piecemeal. But I try to pick those who are... Uh, doing things that, that I think otherwise wouldn't be done at all. Uh, for example, my safe haven for donkeys in the Holy Land, where there are very, very few uh, protections for animals at all. Uh, so I say, right, well, if, I, if they weren't doing this, would anybody else do it? The answer is almost certainly no. Um, and so whether it's a human charity or an animal charity or whatever it may be, um, then uh, I, you know, uh, that is the criterion that I use. If they weren't there, would anybody else be doing this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, going back to as well, faith and politics. Has there ever been a time where, in your political career, where there it, there was a bit of a conflict between political decisions and your faith? Well, I was very blessed in that because the answer is only once. Uh, and I was a backbencher, so I was free to rebel. If I'd been a minister, it would have been a very different cup of tea. Um, but it was the um, Human uh, Embryology uh, Act, um, which also had uh, abortion up to birth for the first time in this country. And I said, I can't vote for this. I wasn't even a Catholic at the time, but I'd always been pro-life. Um, and I said, I cannot vote for this, and I'm not going to vote for it. And what's more, I'm going to vote against it. I could do it because I was a backbencher. That is the only occasion I can recollect because the Conservative Party has a great tradition of giving free votes in on issues like that, matters of conscience, free vote. Labour much less so, though in 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 some sometimes they do. Uh, and um, therefore there's no party line, therefore you can vote anywhere you like. You know, from the prime minister down to the newest backbencher, you can vote any way you like. And so I very rarely had that sort of conflict. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, and how much, I suppose, does writing mean to you in terms of writing novels uh, or, or articles or uh, any different nonfiction books? I mean, is writing a really something that's important for you? Yes, and it has been ever since I was a child. I used to write stories as a child um, and finish my first novel. Uh, when I was 18. I'm very glad I didn't try to get it published because it was set in ancient Rome. And I think if I had got it published, the estate of Quo Vardis would have sued me for plagiarism. And I was still at the stage where I was absorbing a lot of other authors' works. Uh, but um, yes, uh, I've always loved it. It had to wait until the bulk of my parliamentary career was over and I'd come off the front bench uh, it, it, to uh, take it to any, you know, any extent. Uh, but I was delighted with the reception for all the four novels. Um, and I wrote a very trivial, uh, very light-hearted detective novel, which I didn't publish in the usual way. I thought, no, this this one's, um, I don't want this judged as a literary work. This is different. Uh, so I published that one on uh, Amazon. And um, I've also, of course, I've written my autobiography and I've written a book on penance. And as we're coming up to Lent, um, 
let me blow my own trumpet a bit and say that it's called Sackcloth and Ashes and that it's published by Bloomsbury. Okay, well, a nice little plug there for, for people that are going to go out and buy the book. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's been great talking to Diane. I mean, I mean, suppose looking back at your whole career, whether it be um, with the Brexit Party or your time in the Conservative Party or on the reality TV shows, how would you suppose you would like to your legacy to be remembered the most? I think just that I um, fought the good fight and I kept the faith and I finished my course. And the more religiously literate amongst your listeners will recognise that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Please stay safe. And um, yes, and, and, uh, and, and all um, your listeners. Thank you. Yes, and um, well, I, you know, I would say hope to see you again soon. But I guess we don't want to see you in the political. You hope not to be in the political front line again. No, but you might see me in other contexts soon. Of course. Well, I'll come see you in Panto when we're allowed back in the theatres, right? <laughs> yes, you can come and see me in Panto. And, uh, and I probably I won't be doing quiz shows forever and a day because uh, your speed of retrieval does diminish as you age a bit. Uh, but I'm still doing a few at the moment. Good, good. Right, um, take care, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. So yeah, really great talking to Anne there. Um, yeah, she was she was really interesting to talk to and, and quite nice and chill. Like we spoke a little bit before and after um, we were recording as well. And you know, although she um, you know doesn't obviously agree with Alistair Campbell's political stance, they're very opposite in terms of most things politically and, and their views. Um, she actually said, "Oh, I bet he was really interesting to have on when you spoke to him. I bet he was very interesting to chat to." Um, so yeah, like you know, although they're very polar opposites I suppose um you know there was still that respect there and she you know and she want you know she was very um interested to know what we spoke about and I think believe she was going to listen to the episode so yeah so you know I, I think you know we we're not always going to agree with people but we've got to allow them to have the platform to express how they're feeling you know as, as you know as long as it's um you know n- nothing horrific like you know, racist or you know homophobic or anything like that but you know I think we need to have the like Anne says in that thing, we have to be careful about um, censoring too much. You know, it's there's got to be a balance, hasn't there? And it's finding that balance because I think we see <laughs> we see kind of um, the extreme both ends. I think when we we're censoring people and we're allowing people to say whatever they want, whether it you know, uh, there's got to be a it's kind of all or nothing, isn't it? It's kind of like too much or and absolutely nothing. Um, so it's got it's you know, there's got to be. Um, a way to manage that which is going to be interesting so i guess you know we're starting to get there just see how we manage it and go forward with it uh, but so much so much, so many thanks for, for Anne for coming on um but yeah be sure to check out um our twitter on at shapes of stories you can follow me on instagram at prestige books and you can follow my website lawrenceprestige.com where you can find out more about me and my children's books but thanks Anne to come for coming on and i'll see you again next time